Well, let's take our Bibles and turn right now to Genesis. We're not going to look at it quite yet, but Genesis chapter 1 will be our first text this morning. I read a story once of a, of a man who came out to the parking lot, Walmart or someplace, and there was a big ding on his car. Somebody hit it pretty hard. And, but there was a note underneath the windshield uh, wiper that uh, gave him encouragement. And so he opened up the note and he read it, and the note read something like this. The, the individual said, uh, there's 18 people watching me right now, and they think I'm writing and giving you my name and address. I, I am not. So... <laughs> People are a mystery, aren't they? It's, it's hard to figure out people, even our own selves sometimes. And so we're looking today at that very issue. There's very few issues more uh, complexing, more confusing to us, I think, than to understand people. Uh, few, have, uh, few have answers. Now, that doesn't mean there's a lot of an- uh, people trying, but few have answers to the basic questions of our lives. Who are we? And why are we here? What has gone wrong with us? And what is our destiny? Those are four of the great questions that all humanity has to face and, and deal with. And very few people have answers to those questions. That doesn't mean there's not a lot trying. We have philosophical and scientific and psychological answers all the time. That's part of the confusion, by the way. We have all these people giving all these answers uh, that, uh, that, that conflict and are not in line with one another and not in line with reality often. And uh, so we're confused even by the answers that people who are supposed to be helping us give. But the fact of the matter is the scriptures have much to say about who we are and why we are here and what went wrong and, and where we're headed. And so we're going to be looking at what God has to say about that. Before we do, I'm going to um, see where I lost that thing at now. Uh, all right. Six seconds ago I had something. I'm having a real hard day. I left with my Bible, my notes, my... Okay, Edwin, we're going to have to move the lines. Okay, there we go. I'm going to have to just say ding. Remember the old ding days? <laughs> ding. So uh, the, uh, here's the question that is... Uh, uh, the next line. We're looking at whatever... You... Okay, let me back up a little bit, not get myself unconfused here in a second. Ah, there's my clicker. All right. I'm ready to go. All right. Or find three or four more things, and I'd be in good shape. Okay, we're looking at this series on what every, everybody needs to know about. And we've looked at what everybody needs to know about God, about Christ, about the Holy Spirit, and about the Bible. And today we're going to look at what everybody needs to know about people. So that is our discussion today. And on the, the Ligonier Lifeway State of the Theology Survey 2022, this is question number 15. We've been looking at this survey every week at what people believe about God and all sorts of things. And uh, this is the question, number 15, everybody is born innocent in the eyes of God. And strangely, or not strangely, not surprising at all, 71% of Americans, 71% say this, this is true. Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. But very sadly and amazingly, 65% of evangelicals said the same thing. 65% of evangelicals agree that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. That means that two-thirds of those who claim to be evangelicals, the most conservative branch of Christianity, do not have a worldview about, that is biblical about people. They do not understand the very nature of humanity. And as we'll work through this sermon this week and next week when we'll look at salvation, uh, we're going to have to say it's very difficult to even be a Christian if you get this question wrong. 
And so as we look at this together today, I hope these things bring insight uh, to you. As we look today, we begin to look and comprehend what Scripture has to say about people. Uh, we're going to turn to several truths, four truths. I answered these four questions we're looking at. Number one, who are we? Who are we? And the answer to that question is extremely important to us. Uh, the majority of people today, you, you know this, the majority of people in America today believe some form of, of evolution. And theistic evolution, Big Bang evolution, basically boils down to the idea that nobody times nothing equals everything. And that's a kind of a bad equation right there. It, when we come to evo the, the theories of evolution, and many Christians accept some form of that as well, and the views of God, we come down to two, two actual possibilities. Either uh, we were created or emerged from some form of slime, and therefore we're pretty slimy, and uh, that's, our, that's who we are, that's what we are, that's, that's, that's what we're going to be, or we've been created by a designer, a creator, a deity. Now, I'm not going to argue all the philosophical issues that go along with that. We, we've had all courses at this church on the, uh, the creationism and the issues of evolution and all those kinds of things. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go straight to the scriptures and see what it has to say. I want you to go then with me to Genesis chapter 1. And we'll start at the beginning, verse 26. What does the scripture say about who we are? And what we'll find out here, scripture says this, that we're uniquely created by God in His image. We're uniquely created by God in His image. 126 says this, And God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let us rule over the flat fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we begin with the, the simple truth. We are not accidents. We didn't emerge from some form of slime pit. Uh, we are the, the, designed by a holy God, the perfect creator, for a purpose. And we were made in the image of God. Four different times he says that here. Three times he said we're made in his image. And one time he said we're made in his likeness, which almost everybody agrees is the exact same thing. The problem we have here is that uh, Scripture doesn't go on to actually explain what it means to be in the image of God. And so theologians and Bible scholars and, and students of Scripture have debated forever what it means to be made in the image of God. So we start with the simple fact. You are made in the image of God. You are, you, are in the, you are in His likeness. But what does that mean? Now, I don't want to get too technical and bore you silly, but I want to go, I'm, I'm going to give you three quick theories that uh, Christians have accepted or believe in. Number one is called the substantive view. Substantive view. And that is that, we, that like God, we reason and we think and we make choices. In other words, if you want to say it differently, it's a, we have personality. God has personality. Personality is usually defined by intellect, emotion, and will. And we have personality, just like God has. God is, is intellect, emotion, and will, and so are we. And so we are made in God's image with that personality. And that is true, except there, that would not make us unique. You see, Scripture says the only creatures God has ever made in His image are people. 
He, angels are not in his image. Do you know that? Angels were not created in the image of God. Animals are not created in the image of God. Only people. And so we have a personality, but we're not unique from angels who have personalities. We're not unique from animals who I think most would say have some kind of personality, even though it's lesser degree. Everybody here that owns a dog and loves their dog, and what narrows it down a little bit, would tell you and argue, they would fight in the, in the foyer over this, that their dog has intellect, emotion, and will. Right? They think. Uh, they, they have emotions. They love you, you think. <laughs> and they, they have wills, and you know that. Cats have wills. Uh, so so we, weren't be, we would not be unique. Well, you call on them that real good. You're sharp to Martin this morning. Uh, we would not be unique from the animal kingdom and the angelic kingdom if it's all, all the image of God is his personality. So here's the second view. It's called relational. God is relational throughout all eternity. God has had a relationship within the Trinity itself. Uh, God cares. God loves. Uh, God bonds. And so do people. And therefore, we are like God. We have relationships. We care for one another. We bond with one another. We need one another. We're, re we're relational beings. And therefore, like God, we made in His image, we're relational. But that does not make us distinct from the angels, who are also relational. And so, that can't possibly be the, the final answer. So the last view seems to be the best, and it's one that you might not think of, and that is the, the view of, that the image of God is representative. That is, we are designed to rule the earth as vice regents of God, as God's ambassadors on this planet. We, of all creatures, have been given that responsibility to, uh, to reflect and mirror the, and represent the image of God on this planet. God has created us as his highest creations on the earth to mirror his image and represent him here. And that seems to be what the image of God is all about. And this goes back, if we go back to ancient times when the scriptures were written, this is very common. Uh, kings who had conquered a particular territory would often set up an image of themselves in those territories in order to, uh, to have people realize they were sovereign over that territory and they would worship even the images of the kings. We have at least two examples in Scripture. Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image of himself, right? And he, and he commands everybody to bow down to his image. And then the Antichrist in the book of Revelation will set up an image of himself and demand the world to worship that image. And so that is, uh, that is what they did in ancient times. This seems to be what the image of God is all about. God has, God has placed us on this earth to represent Him, to mirror Him, and to reflect His glory on this earth as His greatest creations on the planet. And so we, are, we, are, we have that position, folks. We are made in the image of God. Owen Strand, who's going to be our speaker at our men's conference here in next month, uh, I'm going to quote a few times from his book, Reenchanting Humanity. Uh, just give you a flavor of, of what he's saying. And also, to, because this relates to what I'm saying today, he said this, to see a man or a woman is to see the only living creature made in the image of God. To see humanity is to see the likeness of God. And then he goes on, the human race is the race made to display 
the glory of God in all the earth in a special way. That's who we are. That's, that's who we were created to be, to reflect the glory of God, to mirror the glory of God, to be the representatives of God on this planet. That's how elevated we are as the creatures of God made in His image. Now here's a second issue concerning who we are, and that is what constitutes a human being. And scripturally, we find that we're constituted by two components, a body and an immaterial nature. Let's start with the body. Look at chapter 2, verse 7 of Genesis. And then the Lord formed man of dust from the ground. This is stop right there. Scripture tells us that we, are, we were created by God. We were given a body by God from the dust to the ground. You may not know this, but most philosophies and religions in the world downplay the human body. The human body is not of interest to most religions. It matters very, very little. Socrates and the Greek philosophers thought the body was the prison house of the soul. And the quicker we were done with the body, the better off we were, which might have been one of the reasons why so many of the, the Greek warriors didn't mind dying. They went into battle and, and died in battle thinking that immediately they would be released from these, these bad, bad bodies and go on to a better world. And they didn't mind thinking about that. The body was a throwaway. They didn't want the body. The same is true of, of the majority of religions. The Gnostics, the first major heresy Christianity faced, uh, believed that the body was not important. That it was actually evil and, and worthless. And they wanted to get rid of it. Uh, they didn't have any interest in it. Hinduism and Buddhism uh, teach that the human body and all material reality is an illusion. We're not really here. It's all illusional. And that's how they handle and believe concerning the body. But Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, right off the bat, tells us God personally formed the human body out of the dust of the earth. And in verse 31 of chapter 1, he said, God saw that all he had made and behold, it was very good. And therefore, the human body is not evil. It is not a throwaway. It is very good in its creation. God created us very good. But because of the fall, as we'll look at in just a moment, our bodies are weak. They get sick. They die. And yet, believers, Christians, are privileged to have in their bodies, as we saw uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Holy Spirit. Do you not know, and this is astounding to all of the religions in the world, really, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? Our bodies house God. We walk around as Christians with God within us, in our bodies, it says. John chapter 5 Verses 25 on talks about the, our bodies are fit for eternity, or will be. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, and even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a to resurrection of life, to those who committed the evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. 
Our bodies are being fit for eternity. We will live forever. Now sometimes we think the only Christians live forever, but that is not what the scriptures teach. The human body will, will live forever, somewhere in eternity. We'll look at that just at the end of our message. Well, one more passage of scripture, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, tells us that our, the believer's bodies will be glorified in eternity. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, uh, by the execution of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. To God, our bodies have great purpose and, and design. God has a future for our bodies. But we're also made of immaterial nature. Again, going back again to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Let's follow up on that. The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The second thing we see is we're made all, not only of physical bodies, but of an immaterial nature. That we find that God takes a body he's made, but that body is not alive. That body is a, is a body, but it has no life in it. God breathes into that body, it says, the breath of life, and he became a living being. Now you might mark in your Bibles that the word living being is the Hebrew word nephesh. And nephesh is the word for soul. The body was there, but it had no soul. It had no immaterial nature. God breathed into that body life. And that body came alive. And so this speaks of the inner immaterial nature, all that's within us that can't be seen and touched and felt. Our spirit, our heart, our mind, our conscience. In Luke chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Notice the Lord said, This is what the great commandment you are to love with your inward being, all your being inside, all your immaterial nature is how you are to love the Lord. So our immaterial nature it can't be touched, it can't be weighed, it can't be measured. Scientists can deal with our brain, they can do surgery on our brain, but scientists cannot do anything with our mind. It cannot measure it, it cannot touch it, it cannot even understand it, though it tries. Bodies can be touched, they can be examined, but our souls and our spirits cannot. So when a person dies, that body remains behind but our inward nature departs. It says concerning Rachel in the, in the Old Testament, it came about as her soul was departing for she died. For she died. So she, well, when she died, her body was still there. But her soul had departed. Her napish had departed. The, uh, one of the, I think one of the things we all struggle with at the, the death of a loved one is to look at that body in the casket at the funeral and see that body that we've known for all these years, uh, a body we have held and loved and touched and lived with for a very long time many times, and yet that body has no response. And it, it's, it's troubling to us. I think in our minds we're always thinking, why, why can't you respond? Why don't you get up? What, you're, 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 I see the body. What's, what's missing? The soul. The inner nature. It's gone. And that's what it speaks of as our inner nature here. 
The human person is therefore composed of a material body and an immaterial nature. Both will exist forever. The body will be transformed into a body fit for eternity, and the inward nature will be fitted for either heaven or hell, as we'll see at the end. And folks, if you don't understand this, then you do not understand the human person. You do not understand yourself, and you do not understand people. Let's say, you had a, let's say somebody's living in a car. Okay, they found an old car, they decided to live in the car. And so they took the wheels off, put cinder blocks underneath, took the motor off because they, they, were, they weren't going to go anywhere in that car, and they, they used it for storage. And so now they live in this car that was designed at one point to, to move, to be, be a mode of transportation. But now they're living in it as if it's their house. And you say, well, I know people like that. I, I've heard of people who live in their car, probably so, but that is not what a car was designed to do. A car was not designed to be a house. It was designed to be an automobile that moved. So people can, can misuse the body. They, they can use it for purposes it was never designed or intended to be, but that doesn't mean they're doing what they should be with the human body and nature. The body's designed for something by God, if it's not used God's way, then it's not being used as God wants it to be used, and our lives are not going the direction God wants us to go. We need to understand that right off the bat. But that leads us to the next issue, the next question, why were we created to begin with? Why are we, why are we here? In the movie uh, 21 Grams, a voice is heard saying, they say that we lose 21 grams at the exact moment of our death. Everyone, the weight of a stack of nickels, the weight of a chocolate bar, the weight of a hummingbird. That's not much value, is it? Shakespeare seemed to agree when he said this at the death of Macbeth's wife. He says this. He says, life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. But are, are, but are our lives virtually wind and noise? Is it a tale told by an idiot? Is that who we are and what we are? Well, that is not what Scripture says. We're not here for a time, and then poof, we're gone. And no more, it matters no more. God has something very different for us. We're going to go to Psalm 8. Turn to Psalm 8. In the meanwhile, let's look at Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. And another passage of Scripture that talks about our value and why we are here. For you formed my inner parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That is, the, that is a description of how God has created us. If you go back to Psalm 8, we follow up on that a little bit. In verses 3 and 4, he says this, When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you have thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? So he looks at himself and he sees what the Lord has made. Look at verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than God. You have crowned him with glory and majesty, 
We have been crowned with glory and majesty. We're fearfully and wonderfully made, and we're crowned with glory and majesty. That's what God says concerning the human being. But we have to look at verse 1, because verse 1 points back that there's, the, the glory isn't for us. The glory is for Him. Verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who has displayed your splendor above the heavens. It is God who's glorious, and all of creation displays His splendor. The, the created world, the universe, displays His splendor. You and I are to, to display His splendor. And so we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're, we're made majestic with glory, but we do that. We are made that way so that we reflect on who He is and His glory. So think about how twisted we have become in our modern times as we constantly try to hog God's glory. Again, Owen Strand said in his book, we hear today that we're only limited by our imaginations. We, become, we can become whatever we like. We should never stop dreaming. We have no meaningful constraints on our potential greatness. We hear that at every commencement service. We hear it in, on all of our commercials and our television shows and our media. We can be whatever we want to be. The sky's the limit. Just dream bigger. And although that's utter nonsense, and everybody really knows it is, and it's completely hollow, people continue to repeat it constantly as we try to rob God of His glory. The reality is we're limited creatures. We're limited by our abilities. We're limited by our circumstances. We're limited by our giftedness and talent. And we're limited by hundreds of things, including being limited by our death. Go back to Genesis with me again. This time Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. We see early on in, in the creation story that our, our great problem, and our great problem is that we want to be like God. Or we want to replace God. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, all was going well. Satan shows up in the garden, as we know. And she sa he says to the woman, verse 4, you surely will not die. God said, if you eat of that tree, you will die. Satan denies that. He says, you will surely not die. For God knows, he's, God's keeping something from you. God doesn't want you to be like him. God doesn't want you to have the good stuff. Satan's first lie and his best lie, the one he uses repeatedly in lives all over the world all the time, is God wants to limit you. God doesn't want you to have the good stuff. God knows that in a day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, doing good and evil. As soon as you eat this stuff, you're going to be like God. You might even be better than God. You might be superior to God. You'll know what even God does not know. You can make yourself God. And when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to, to, to make one wise, she took from his fruit and ate. There she is, taking from it. She believed the lie, and she bought the lie that she could be like God, perhaps even better than God. And then Adam shows up, and he just rolls over and plays dead. He doesn't do anything. She gives her husband, and he eats it. No fight at all. He just gives it up. Scripture, as we, as we look at these kind of passages of scriptures, it helps us understand that something has gone terribly wrong. So far, we've looked at the fact that we're, 
We're wonderfully made. Fearfully and wonderfully made. We're, we're majestic. We're in the image of God. We'll live forever with Him as Christians. But something has gone wrong with the human being, the human nature. And we see what has happened right here. We have been ruined by sin. This is the point that the people on the survey we looked at have totally missed. The human being has been ruined, utterly wrecked by sin. Go to Romans chapter 3 with me today now. We'll be spending most of the rest of our time there. Romans chapter 3. And look at, we'll be looking at a wonderful passage. What is wrong with us? One, one Christian leader said this, I've never met a man who wanted to be bad. The mystery of man is that he is bad when he wants to be good. Interesting thought. D.L. Moody once said, I've never met a man who has given me as much trouble as myself. And I think most of us would identify with that. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, it says you are, you are dead, you were dead before Christ in your trespasses and sins. There's our problem. We're not wounded. We're not sick. Don't follow the medical model. We're not sick. We're not ill. We're dead. Dead is dead. You, you're dead in your trespasses and your sins. You're spiritually dead and you will die physically if the Lord does not come back first and you will die eternally if you do not know Christ as your Savior. Sometimes we call this total depravity. Again, Owen Strand says this, our minds and hearts and souls and bodies and entire beings are oriented towards wickedness. We're not as bad as we could be but we're totally ruined by sin and as such are comprehensively evil. No place says this more clearly than, Ephesians, than Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 18. What clarity we have here. And we see in this passage as we run through it very quickly a lot of absolutes. Uh, abs there's all sorts of absolutes here. You, you know, we're, not, we're taught by our mothers never to say never. Right? Because, you know, if you say to your husband, for example, you never pick up your socks, he will inevitably remember the one time he did. You know, so you never say never. But Paul loads this passage up with, with uh, absolutes. He says in this passage, he gives us four nuns, one all, and two not even ones. And so a lot of absolutes that are here. It's not that we do not know to do right, as we look at this, earlier in Romans chapter 1, he said in verses 18 to 23 that, that even nature itself teaches us to do right. It gives us a moral code. And chapter 2, it says there's a conscience that, that tells us that we're right or wrong. And, and the Jews themselves have the law of God. They knew. So what's the problem? The problem is not lack of knowledge. The problem is our, that we are ruined and wrecked and polluted by sin, and therefore we choose to be sinners. Why is that the case? Look at verse 9. Why, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we are already, are already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. The word under is the idea here that it controls us. We're controlled by sin. How much of us is controlled by sin? How much of us have been wrecked by sin from the very, very get-go? Well, first of all, our minds are. Look at verse 10. There, there's none righteous or not even one. There's none who understands. 
Not only is no one righteous, but in fact, no one even understands how hopelessly lost they are. They do not understand that they do not understand the things of God. The Bible says the unbeliever has no capacity to understand spiritual things. Go back to chapter 1 for just a moment. Watch this very quickly, verse 21. He said that they became fruitful in their speculations. First of all, their foolish heart was darkened, fruitful and, and foolish. We drop down to, uh, to verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. This is not very flattering, is it? Uh, and then there, verse 28, go down there, verse 28, we find they're depraved. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things that are not proper. In verse 29, it said they were filled with wickedness. In verse 31, they were without understanding and untrustworthy. In other scriptures, we find the one, passage right above us here, Ephesians 2, 1, we're dead in our trespasses and sin. In Ephesians 4, 18 and 19, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greed. And then, there's a, um, go back, verse, whoop. well, I guess I ruined that. So, bring, bring me back up to that, Isaac, when you get a chance, okay? At any rate, we see that the fullness of the depravity of our minds, well, our minds have been wrecked by sin. How about our wills? Verse 11. It's chapter 3, verse 11. He says this, there's none who understands, there's none who seek for God. If you, read, if you read that verse of scripture to a lot of people, they would deny it. They would say, I seek for God all the time. It is in vogue to say, I am spiritual, I'm just not religious. That's utter nonsense. No one, according to Scripture, has ever sought for God. They might have sought for a God of their own imagination or a God that they thought would give them what they wanted, but no one seeks for the true God as He really is. Scripture makes that clear. That is, that is our mind, and no one ever will. A.W. Tozer, in one of his best books, The Root of Righteousness, says, The bent of nature is towards the wilderness, never towards the fruitful field. Check that out when you start your gardens this year. Your gardens want to go back to the wild, and the human nature does too. We don't automatically move towards God. How about our behavior? Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. The words here for uh, con concerning uh, turning aside is a word used of soldiers that desert the, the battlefield. We're deserters. We've turned aside. The word for useless is a word for used in ancient times for soured milk. What good is that kind of milk that's turned to sour and, and clocking together there? And then our speech tells on us, verses 13 to 14, it talks all about that, the fact that our, our throat is an open grave and so forth. In our lifestyle, look at verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths. These verses explain why we have this worldwide conflict all the time. Do you ever wonder why things like Ukraine happen? And China and North Korea and, and conflicts all over the world? Why? The scripture tells us right here. Because our, our whole natures have been ruined by sin. And it affects everything, including our lifestyle. But look at the motive. Let's not miss the motive in verse 18. Here, here's the real issue. There's no fear of God before their eyes. 
They don't fear God. They, have, they, they don't care what God thinks. They are their own God. And, and they don't even factor God into their lives. No, there's no fear of God before them. And that's how the world lives. They look in the mirror. They see their own face. They said, I want to live for the approval of that person, not the approval of God. There's our problem. Every human being who's ever been born lives this way. This is what we are. Until Jesus Christ comes and gives us his righteousness and changes us. And that leads us to the final question very quickly. What is our destiny? Hebrews 9.27 says this. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Every, every human being is going to stand before Almighty God someday at a time of judgment. At that point, what's going to happen? Those who have rejected Christ and never turned to Him, continue to worship themselves, will end this way. For 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will pay the penalty. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. We cannot imagine how horrible that is. It, it, we, we have no concept of what the universe would be like without the grace of God. No concept whatsoever. But one day, multitudes will live outside the presence of God. What an awful concept. But for those that know Jesus Christ, it's a totally different piece of work will be in His presence. Revelation 21, 1-3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be among them. I want to be there, don't you? In the presence of God for all eternity. That there's the two destinies. We're, we are destined. What, what's going to happen to us? Multitudes will spend eternity in what is called eternal destruction. And then those who know Christ will spend eternity with Him in His presence. Christ takes sinners. Broken, polluted, ruined, dead and gives them his righteousness and eternal life. That's, the, that's what everyone has to know about salvation that we'll talk about next week. And so as we pull it all together, we see we're made in the image of God. We're fearfully and wonderfully created beings, but sin has ruined the human, per, human person. And the only remedy, the only remedy is Jesus Christ and his righteousness. As I thought about this sermon over the last few weeks, a story that I've get told you before kept coming back to my thoughts and I just couldn't resist. You may or may not remember it. But it was a story of a young man, a young pastor, who uh, had longed to take his little girl to see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. He couldn't wait till she was old enough to enjoy it at the big screen. And so he, when she was a few years, I don't know, five years old or whatever, four or five, they went to, together, just the two of them, to watch Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. She was enraptured by the great story on, on the screen. He said she laughed with Dopey, got mad at Grumpy, and cringed before the evil queen. She had real tears came from her eyes uh, when, uh, when the, the, then various things happened. And Snow White began to sing her song, Someday My Prince Will Come, 
And the little girl's eyes shone, he said. She, she squeezed his hand and says, Daddy, the prince is coming. But, but the, at that point, everything went wrong. Remember the story. Uh, the bride tastes the fruit, the, falls under the spell and falls asleep. The dwarves cannot wake her. They too are waiting for the prince to come. And this pastor, as pastors do, began to think about how all that fit very well with the story of humanity. You see, we've all tasted the forbidden fruit. We've all eaten the poison apple. We've all fallen under the spell, its curse, and we've all fallen asleep. And then thinking of himself as a preacher, he said this, the preacher's job finally is not figuring out how to be novel or distinctive or to say something no one has ever said before. Our job is a more humble one. It is to look at every moment of time, every inch of space, to find there the old, old story and to keep reminding everyone who will listen that the curse shall not have the last word. One day the prince will come for his bride and take her home. And then he ends with this very thoughtful little comment. He said, now every once in a while, even now, in the midst of and sometimes in spite of the preacher's words, the prince comes, kisses a bride, and somebody wakes up. Maybe that could be you today. You've heard the words of the ruin of sin. You've heard briefly of the only solution is the prince will come and bring you eternal life. Do you know that Savior? If not, you are destined for eternal destruction. If you, can, if you know him, you'll be with him forever and ever. He died to save you. This is not a fairy tale. This is truth. Christ will come for his bride. You want to be part of that marriage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for yourself as always. We're so grateful for your kindness to us. People who are ruined, who choose, Lord, to sin. And yet, Lord, you come to redeem us and save us from ourselves and to make us fit for you for all eternity. Lord, we can't even imagine, begin to imagine the graciousness and the kindness of yourself. Lord, there has to be people under my hearing right now who do not know you, who are still ruined. They're still asleep in their sins. Father, wake them up this morning. Open their hearts. Let them see the glory and the splendor and the wonder of Jesus Christ. May they turn in repentance and faith and receive the most wonderful of all gifts, the gift of eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.